Hello and welcome back after our summer break to the Austrian AI podcast. I'm your host, Manuel Paseca. And today on the show, I have the pleasure to talk to Marco Mondelli. Marco is a young group leader at the Institute of Science and Technology, the IST Austria, with his group focusing on theoretical elements of machine learning. In particular, he is using his experience in developing error-correcting codes for wireless communication channels in combination with methods from information theory in order to get a better understanding of the fundamental properties of gradient descent methods that are used to train deep neural networks. The interview is split into two parts. In the first one, we are, we are talking about his group at the IST. Why he started this group at the IST, what makes the IST an interesting institute and the infrastructure they are providing to a research group like his. We are talking about the grad school at the IST and about the possibility of distributed research teams in the wake of the COVID pandemic. We end this part with a discussion about skills and attitudes of strong PhD candidates for a group like his focused on theoretical machine learning. In the second part of the interview, we are focusing on the research done in his group, which is surrounding three main topics. The representation of training data, how to make sure to make most of the different training samples, efficient training of models with gradient descent methods, and ensuring that the models trained have the capacity to generalize well. In addition, we are talking about a recent publication by the group in which they investigate why stochastic gradient descent methods work so well on over-parameterized models. Using mean field particle methods from theoretical physics, they find that those local minima in the loss landscape of models trained with SGD are approximately interconnected by piecewise linear paths, and that the loss along those paths vanishes with increasing model size. While editing this interview, I had to think about a quote I heard quite some time ago. There's nothing more practical than a good theory. I believe that improving our understanding of gradient descent methods and how they work on deep neural networks is essential to develop improved training and optimization algorithms that can push the boundaries of what is possible with machine learning and hopefully at some point enable the development of machine learning systems that go beyond the limitations of modern narrow AI systems. I really hope that you're going to enjoy this interview. Hello and welcome to the Austrian AI podcast. I'm your host, Manu Paseka, and today I have the pleasure to have on the show Marco Mondelli. Hello, Marco. Thank you very much for coming on to the show. Hi, Manu. Thanks a lot for the invitation. It's actually my great pleasure to be a guest in your podcast. Very good. Thank you very much. Today, I hope that we are going to talk a bit about yourself, your background and your career, and then a bit about your research group at the IST, and as well about your particular research and the, the things that you are working on. But maybe we can start out with you giving a short introduction about yourself and your career. Yep. So hello, everyone. My name is Marco Mondelli. So I joined uh, the faculty here at IST as an assistant professor a couple of years back in fall 2019. So maybe let me give a brief overview of my career path. So first I studied a bachelor and master in Pisa and at uh, the Sant'Anna School of Advanced Studies in Italy. I'm actually trained as an engineer. And then as I got older and older, I shifted towards more theoretical topics. Uh, then after that, I moved uh, to Switzerland 
for grad school and I studied computer science. Uh, this was from 2012, basically to the beginning of 2017, uh, TPFL in the IC department. After that, I did a postdoc in the United States. So I was at Stanford for a couple of years as a postdoc. And I also visited the Simons Institute for the Theory of Computing at Berkeley, which is somewhat co-located. It's actually not that far. I used to live in San Francisco. And uh, I went to the academic job market in the 2019 season and I got a very nice offer here at IST. So I decided to come back to Europe. And yeah, here I am. I mean, I started not too long ago. So I've had, uh, let's see. So I've had basically six months of faculty position pre-COVID and then COVID hit. And uh, we've all had this uh, somewhat strange period. Uh, where we had some periods work from home and some periods coming back to office. I mean, I do hope that now it's over. Now both me and uh, the, my whole group actually is uh, vaccinated. So go there and vaccinate, mm -hmm. please. Uh, yeah, and uh, so I've been here for a couple of years. Mm, at IST, we have a tenor track process, which somewhat mimics what gets done most of US institutions and some places in Europe, like EPFL, ETH and places like that. So it's typically uh, six years. So at the end of the fifth, uh, you're up for tenure. Uh, you can always, of course, delay or you can go early, but six years is uh, typically the standard time. And you know there is a review uh, that lasts, I don't know, six months, a year, something like this. And mm -hmm. after that, you know that the, basically your position becomes permanent or not. Interesting. But maybe before we can go to your group, uh, to your current group at the IST, um, because you mentioned like your, your work at or time at the EFPL and the world in Berkeley. So prior to what you're doing right now, um, you, as we talked off mic in the preparation of this, right? You said coming from the engineering side, your research has been in part like, um, in error correcting codes and in, in information theory. So can you give us a bit of a background so where do you have been coming there? Um, I have to say that my background is, uh, is quite heterogeneous in the sense that I've done a fair amount, I've covered a fair amount of topic in this last few years. Again, my background as, uh, is as an engineer, so I was trained as a telecom engineer. And this also was somewhat my start towards the world of information theory. Since mm -hmm. one, I mean, information theory is essentially very this could be thought of as a, as a branch of mathematics, but one of the workhorses of information theory has been traditionally wireless communications because information theory tells you the optimal rates and the optimal performance that uh, communication systems can achieve. So this was the way that I somewhat attacked the problem or the way I came in into information theory. So from the wireless side and uh, during grad school, I was mostly interested in understanding the scalings and the theoretical foundations of a class of error correcting codes that made it to the latest 5G standard. So those are the polar codes. And most of my interest was into understanding how this kind of code scale. So you know that these codes are optimal in the sense that, that when the length of the sequence that you send towards the receiver, those are the cheapest in the mm -hmm. sense that they are able to add the least amount possible of redundancy. But what you're interested, now, now this is an asymptotic result because this just tells you that as the lengths of the codes get longer and longer, then 
basically you can re- you can send the highest possible amount of information. Mm-hmm. But one practical question is, well, what happens if I just have to send you a thousand bits? Because, for example, I want to stream a YouTube video or, I don't know, I want to stream this conversation that we're having since mm-hmm. we're having this on Zoom right now. So the question is, how does the relevant parameter scale as the block grows large? And here the relevant parameters are basically the redundancy that you have to pay because that's you know expensive because that's not information. This you just send so that you're able to protect yourself against the errors mm-hmm. with the complexity of the algorithm that's needed to encode and decode the signal. So how all these parameters scale. So my PhD thesis was an exploration of these topics. And it was really the interplay between theory and practice because I, I have to say it was eminently theoretical work because I'm mostly interested in the theoretical foundation of this kind of objects. But there's also very clear practical implications because these codes actually are used and are implemented in, I'm guessing, pretty much all the phones and all the objects that people are listening mm-hmm. to podcast on. Like, for example, a paper came out, um, a patent came out in collaboration with Ericsson. I, I visited Stanford before and I gave a talk there. So I discussed with the researcher there and we ended up patenting some technology. So this is really the interplay between theory and practice. Mm-hmm. I understand. Well, definitely the communications and the, and the methods they are using, especially now in times of COVID, are essential, right? To keep society working as it is. Um, interesting. But it means then, then after this time, as you said, after your PhD, your interests shifted in this a bit to focus on optimization in the yes, machine indeed. learning. Yeah, yeah. So after that, I decided to change a little bit and I moved uh, towards machine learning and in particular uh, learning theory, theoretical machine learning. And even though the topics may appear somewhat different, the philosophy of my work has somewhat stayed the same because here, the way I look at the problem is the following. So we have some inference task. So we want to solve some machine learning tasks, which could mm-hmm. be something as easy as linear regression. So you have a signal X, the signal is unknown, and you get access to measurement in order to understand how the signal looks like. For example, in phase retrieval, what you look at is you take your signal X, you do a Fourier transform, and you take the modulus of the Fourier transform. This, for mm-hmm. example, makes sense, and it's a problem that has been very well studied because it appears in most of imaging disciplines. For example, in crystallography, you want to essentially make a picture of a crystal. So the mm-hmm. way you do it is that you bombard the crystal with X-rays, and then you try to observe the diffraction pattern at the screen. Now, observing the diffraction pattern basically means to measure the amount of of rays that are perceived at the screen. So this is a phase retrieval problem because the phase measurement is very hard to capture. Mm -hmm. Very easy to get an intensity measurement because essentially you just have a sensor there and you measure whatever it is that you obtained. So now here, This is an inference problem because I'm giving some measurements, which are often noisy because, for example, my measurements are not perfect. I may have Gaussian noise. And from that, I want to infer something about the signal. Mm -hmm. So the fundamental questions that I ask are, what's the minimal amount of measurements that I need to collect in order to be able to say something about the signal? That's an information theoretic question. So here, there is nothing algorithmic at the moment. So I'm just asking, what is the minimum possible? So if I Mm -hmm. had the world's faster supercomputer and they could run everything in one millisecond, what would be the algorithm? And 
what would be the minimal amount of information. Okay, this is somewhat a benchmark. So if I have less than that, then you know my time spent on designing better algorithm is just wasted because I just have to go down there and get more measurements to solve the problem. Under the understanding that you want to completely or perfectly reconstruct the signal. I mean, right? here, here you have various versions of this. So one version of this is to try to have a weak recovery. So you just want to get a little bit of correlation. Mm -hmm. One other version of this is to reconstruct it perfectly. And I have to say that oftentimes in this kind of problems, if you're able to do weak recovery, it's not so hard to actually get a full recovery. Because typically, if I'm able to get a good estimate, then it's not hard to find local methods that will look in the neighborhood of the solutions where I am, and will try to greedily improve that solution. So mm -hmm. for example, gradient descent methods are an excellent example of this kind of algorithm. So gradient descent method that's essentially look at the solution you're in and try to look in the neighborhood and see what is the direction that will improve the quality of my solution. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes, especially in this kind of information theoretic problems, if you're able to get weak recovery, then you're immediately able to get something a little bit better. Okay. But yeah, that's actually a very good question. So the two problems are indeed separate and For some cases where analysis is indeed possible, uh, the thresholds are not necessarily the same. Very interesting. And as you said, right, um, then the, this is in part as well that the focus that you have at the moment at your research yes. group. Yeah. yeah, so that was me mentioning that the first question is again, this information theoretic question. Mm -hmm. So what's the minimal amount of measurement that's needed to solve the problem, either partially or completely? The second question is an algorithmic question. So suppose that I have this minimal amount, can I find a low complexity algorithm that does the trick for you? And if I find it, how does this scale with the relevant parameters of the problem, which are typically the number of measurements, the number of signal dimensions, and the complexity of the decoding algorithm. So you can instantiate the wireless communications problem into this kind of framework, and you can instantiate this in this kind of framework, many machine learning problems. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, so this was perhaps a super high level overview. So now let me zoom in a little bit more. So one specific topic that uh, I've been looking at in the past couple of years, and that's really the focus of my group here at IST, is the theory of deep learning. This is, okay, motivated really by the explosion of deep learning algorithms to solve many problems in inference. I mean, unless you've lived under a rock for the past uh, five years or so, I think you're pretty much aware uh, of what neural networks can do and uh, of the wide range of applications that they've seen. Mm -hmm. But from a theoretical perspective, it, many things are yet to be discovered. So we don't really know how come uh, these models don't overfit, how come adding more parameters than what the, the usual statistics theory would tell you is actually beneficial for this architecture and resolving these mysteries is indeed at the center of my current research here at IST. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I really thought that we are going to talk more about it in depth, maybe a little um, good onwards in the interview, but then sure. maybe going shortly back to your group and your research group at the moment. Um, can you tell something about your group? How, how big is the group? And um, maybe a bit how you're situated at, at the IST? Sure, sure. So again, I started a couple of years back and uh, 
one of the, I mean, I applied very broadly two years ago. I, I lived already in the US, so I applied both in Europe and in the US. And one thing that really attracted me about uh, IST was the international location. Like I have a very international group. We have a general admission process, like most like top US places and top European places. So first we do by admission by title. So you send CV and reference letters and uh, all the usual guests. And we do a short list. Okay, pre-COVID, we used to invite people on campus that I actually did not get to see because <laughs> the first time this happened, uh, COVID took place. So now we do everything on Zoom. We may go back to interviews on campus this year, but uh, you know the situation is still quite fluid. So we have an interview process then. And finally, we select uh, a short list of candidates that uh, get an offer. And I really liked this international location and the fact that we have a general recruiting process like UPFL, UPH, MIT, Stanford, like top places. And this was one of the main reasons I decided to go back that attracted me. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But then besides the internationality and like the, the international candidates that are coming to the IST, for you, um, just to get it, an understanding, for you as, an, as a group that concentrates on theory, I mean, I know that you definitely are you're running models, you need certain type of infrastructure that I guess is in part provided by the, um, by the uh, research institute. But um, for you, what, what are, for example, typical elements of like some kind of infrastructure or being embedded in the research institute that is important for the type of work that you're doing? I mean, I would say... Uh, the main ingredient really is uh, just computing power. So we have a scientific computing unit that uh, has a cluster that can be accessed by all staff, faculty, and students at IST. I mean, also this I, I, I quite like very much. So the institute does not uh, has not put any incentives for you to buy your own machines, but the way in which it works is that you chip in. Mm -hmm. And if you buy machines to the cluster, then you get like three hours. So that then you get, you know, chips, like the, the equivalent of what you spent, you get uh, into using the, the, the local machines. Uh, this uh, get renewed uh, relatively often. I mean, uh, there, is a, there is a meeting like twice a year or so. And some of the machines have been even renewed since I arrived here. Mm -hmm. And okay, then you get your credentials to access and you can access the various machines, some GPU, some of CPU, but uh, given that I'm mostly doing theory work, the only thing that I really need is uh, computational facilities. So here we also have a wide range of other facilities, uh, but those would be more for the experimental scientists or for people doing systems, if mm -hmm. not thinking to the engineering side. So really, most of my budget is uh, spent on people. So it's spent on, uh, on strong students, strong postdocs. Mm -hmm. So maybe I can quickly say how, grads, how the grad school works. Yes, uh, so the first year, uh, which is covered by the institute, is courses and uh, up to four rotations between three and four. And so when, when you get in, you get admitted to AST, so you don't get admitted to do PhD with one faculty. I think, okay, in my opinion, this is the right way to do things. It's expensive because this means that the first year the, the institute has to pay. Uh, but I think it's very good because, uh, you know, a half an hour interview is not so much time. So mm -hmm. I think it's good that uh, you get, you know, the feeling of what it's like to work 
with uh, some people. So you get to do a rotation. Rotation is maybe two, three months or so. And this gives you really a hands-on experience to understand what research is like in a certain group. Mm -hmm. And those rotations, the students can, can select, or this is like as well in a combination with you as a group leader deciding on which... Yeah, I mean, take? typically the, the way it works is that, uh, I mean, now we're going to have the new batch coming in a month or so, like they typically arrive mid-September and the semester starts October 1st. And okay, people contact you and they tell you, you know, I would like to do a rotation. I mean, of course, when you do admission, you always have in mind how many spots you have. Also, because you know, you don't want to kick out people. So you, you want to have you know, a reasonable amount and you want to have a spot for everyone that's interested and everyone that you think would be a good fit for you. But the final decision is really, really happens later. And I would say it's a combination of the two because uh, you know that's a two-way street. I think the most important thing in grad school is, is motivation and good fit. Uh, I mean, talent is important. I mean, you have to be good and uh, you have to be persistent and you have to make good studies and things like that. But I really think that, that the most important thing is that you find the topic that you're truly interested in and that you love. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, a PhD is not, if I can use a, an athletics uh, kind of metaphor, mm -hmm. uh, PhD is not a 100 meter run. A PhD is more like a marathon. Or mm -hmm. uh, it's more like a cycling race, like the one that uh, actually an applied mathematician from Austria won. Ah, yes. It's actually a postdoc at TPFL in applied math. So that's what grad school looks like. So it's uh, it's long, uh, it's a long run or a long uh, cycle. Mm -hmm. And one of the most difficult things is to keep the motivation and to keep the stamina throughout the whole thing. Because, you know, when you find something interesting and things go well, it's easy. But, you know, in, in a travel that's four or five years, it's not going to be always like that. So somewhat to, to balance the highs with the lows is the hardest thing. And this in a half an hour interview is very hard mm -hmm. to judge. So I think having rotations always gives you the opportunity to understand a little bit better what's going on in that lab. And if you think this is, uh, this is a good fit for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, in general, I take... So we have four rotation slots. So I typically, in these two years, I had like five, six per year. So one per rotation and a couple of rotations are a bit more crowded, especially at the beginning. And, you know, there are clearly some rotations at the beginning that are done for fun. So these are people that are not really interested in, in doing grad school with me, but they just want to see what's going on. So that's completely fine. I think it's very good because they mm -hmm. want to somewhat broaden their experience and they want to broaden the kind of things they know and there are some others that are clearly done because they're thinking about affiliating and they're thinking about working with me and so i also try to tune a little bit the projects that i give i understand so that's for the one that are more learning i try to be something perhaps more self-contained so that you get something concrete out of it and you learn the technique you learn something mm -hmm. for the other ones maybe it's a bit more open-ended so to give you a taste of how research in my group feels like so that you understand if if that's what you like or not. And for your research group, what do you think, like, um, let's say, interests which are a good fit? Yeah, the interest is very important. I have to say that I have, given that my background is quite heterogeneous, I ended up having, at least for the moment, a rather heterogeneous group. So I have uh, four students at the moment, two are co-affiliated, which is also something that I like a lot because 
especially when you start, you're always, you know, looking to branch out for collaborations and to get new ideas. And uh, even though the computer science department here is relatively small, so we have like 10, 11 people, and the whole institute is like 60 faculty, I think it's good that we are tightly knit in the sense that uh, it's very encouraged to have collaborations. Also because, let's say, your tenure decision is independent of the tenure decisions of the others, so there is no internal competition, which is great. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you have internal competition, then you would think twice to somewhat share the good course. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this, I think, is very good. It's something that, that I like a lot. And the background of the people that work with me is quite various. Again, I, I have a strong theory component. So one of them, for example, has a background in applied math, and then uh, he did the master in machine learning and optimization. One more as a background uh, in actually physics, statistical physics. Uh, one's a mathematician. Actually, two are mathematician, but one is turning into a biomathematician. So this is uh, quite advice with Matthew Robinson uh, here just down the hall. Mm -hmm. And he's interested in looking at inference problems for genomics. And mm -hmm. so we have been looking at some algorithms that have been studying in the past few years to apply them to the particular problems that he's interested in too. And we've obtained some interesting preliminary results. So we hope that goes through. So I, I would say a strong theoretical foundation is very important, especially probability and analysis. So those is did something very important, but I don't like to draw boundaries. Like I don't like to draw barriers. Like if you don't have a master in applied mathematics, then, then you can't then you can't apply to work with me. This I think makes very little sense. Like mm -hmm. I, I don't have a bachelor in mathematics. But I am not doing probably much more than, than what the average student does. Uh, so I understand. So, so background wise, mm -hmm. uh, not really. I mean, of course, uh, I somewhat have now after a couple of years of recruiting, have a good idea of what are the good schools around here uh, or really all over the world. Like, for example, we have a quite successful internship program where we get extremely strong candidates from all over the world. I've had a micro Iranian community here because they all come from the same school, which is Sharif, and they're all very good. So I that has been quite successful so far mm -hmm. and again this i remember even in my grad school days you do have really batches like for example one student comes from a top institution then he's going to tell his friends and they're all going to apply next year so this this you know happens all the time so i remember that this happened in my old lab at epfl uh, even though epfl is probably scale 20 larger than here and mm -hmm. just the ic department as pretty much the same size of the whole IST, but you know the dynamics I think are not that are similar. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Maybe one thing that I wanted to shortly touch about still about your concert group and something that you mentioned before as well concerning now like the situation with COVID and as you already talked about these international students. So um, in the private industry, there is a huge debate going on concerning distributed teams so that more and more companies are moving to distributed teams. And I was wondering from your perspective, then actually, how does it look for you, like a research group that is focused on um, on the on theory parts, as you mentioned before, one of the requirements is compute, but obviously, right, accessing that compute uh, is available or possible from everywhere. So I wonder actually from your perspective for a research group like yours, would a distributed team um, be a possibility? 
That's actually a very good point. You know, we've been discussing this uh, at ISD at Lent mm-hmm. in the past few months. Uh, also because here we have more theoretical groups uh, like mine or like even the mathematicians and more practical groups like people that have to run experiments. I think one thing that uh, we've been really successful is in being responsible ourselves because we, okay, now, you know, I cross fingers because <laughs> you never know, but we never had really clusters inside. We had just sporadic cases, people that did not go to campus that often. So I think we have been very good or very lucky or both uh, in containing the, the, the spread of the epidemic. Uh, campus has been closed for very little. Also, because closing campus means that whoever does experimental work has to throw everything in the trash and start over, which is not great. Uh, for the theory groups, I think you just have to be reasonable. I mean, my policy is really just to be reasonable. So now uh, the mode of operation is still online. We'll go back as standard mode operation on campus on September 1st. So those are the news that we recently got. But what I said to all my group members is feel free to choose the mode of operation that best suits you. Also, mm-hmm. because in my experience, even through grad school or to postdoc, different people just function in a different way. In the sense that there are people that thrive in the personal interaction, so that really do need to talk to people, even if it's like nothing, even if it's just an idea. So it doesn't have a formal meeting. And they really enjoy the somewhat casual interactions that you have, that you can have when you're in person. And there are just people that, you know, deep need to do their thing and need to think deeply about their problem and they don't want the cost of bothering or how's, how's it going, is there any progress and stuff. So I think on this, at least my policy is that I'm always very flexible and I always try to be very reasonable and to try to understand what people actually need. So I have, in general, no requirement like you have to be on campus at least this many days or this many hours. This I, I think makes no sense mm-hmm. if, if you work with me. Uh, I have to say also that most people tend to come and most pe- pretty much all the people in my group uh, do come and do like the interactions. One other thing is that I have a young group, of course, because I started just two years ago. And so what happens is that pretty much all my students, at least up until now, lived on campus. Mm-hmm. And so in that case... Like you live on campus, maybe your room is not that large. In that case, I, I understand that you want to go to office because, you know, it's also somewhat a way to evade to the to the closed spaces that you have. Exactly, yeah, sure. In that case, one thing that I always try is, even in the bad days, if it was possible to have an in-person meeting every once in a while just to make sure that people were also right and they were doing well, because I, I, I think that helped. Then, you know, it, uh, you, you never know. But uh, I think that was... To keep a little bit of personal touch, I think is very important because mm-hmm. you end up working with people. So, but do you think that going forward, as you said already, <clears throat> it would be an option to in the future have candidates that um, are not situated at the campus? I think it's difficult to be honest because, like for example, I've had a lot of requests for remote internships. Mm-hmm. Now, this I don't do. Essentially, because an internship is very short and the outcome in some very good cases is even a paper or a publication or something concrete, but most of the time is really about exploration. And doing this on, on Zoom or like at every once in a while, I think is just hard 
mm-hmm. to be honest. I mean, I'm not happy to, to say no, but the fact is that I think this just doesn't work. I understand. On grad school, it's it's much longer, so that there probably you could do a few months, like remotely. And for example, I mean, maybe there are people with a family abroad or that want to visit, or there are some other situations. So there, I, I always understand, and I'm always very flexible in that. Mm-hmm. But I think that doing a full PhD remotely, at least the way I work, I just don't see how to do that. Mm-hmm. Because without any personal contact, I think it's just very hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand. So I think uh, I think that's that's difficult. Interesting. But then, um, then that's again maybe shifting gears a bit, um, focusing again on more the core of your research that you're doing as at, at your group. Um, yeah. You said you're focusing with right on understanding um, gradient descent methods. Um, can you give us maybe a short introduction a bit about to make this more concrete, or maybe give sure, one or two course. examples to our listeners? Yeah, of course. So, the state of the art is that most of these tasks in machine learning are solved, okay, if, if I can be brutal, by throwing at it a very large neural network with tons of parameters, tons of compute time, and essentially trying to optimize and trying to find the neural network that fits well the data mm-hmm. and that produces good generalization results. So I, I was talking the other day uh, with a friend who's uh, now a senior research scientist at Google. I won't mention, <laughs> I, won't, mm-hmm. I won't do names here. And okay, one, one observation is that in many of these large scale tasks, machine learning is somewhat already becoming a little bit like astrophysics in the sense that you need huge teams, you need a lot of infrastructure. And so this kind of research can be done very well only by big companies, simply because other places don't have the capability to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not the real of research that I want to do. And I think that as an academic, what you can bring is instead fundamental understanding and fundamental theoretical insights. The way really most of these networks are optimized these days, if I'm allowed the jokes, is by uh, graduate student descent. Mm-hmm. In the sense that you take a bunch of graduate students and then you ask them you know, to program something or uh, to test something. And then, you know, graduate student after graduate student, you try to find a local optimal or an architecture that just works well. Mm-hmm. So these are just uh, somehow elaborate ways of doing grid searches. So you look for all the possible architecture for all the possible parameters. You have, of course, uh, somewhat engineering hacks or engineering good practices, you could call them, but you don't have a fundamental understanding of, of what's going on. So mm-hmm. what I seek in my group is to understand how and why gradient descent methods successfully optimize complex data sets. That's really the focus of my group. And in this, you can ask basically three related questions. So really one is more complex than the other and they're really in order. So one is, for example, a representation question. So I give you a data set, it has n data points, and then I give you a network. And the first question is, is it possible to find a set of parameters in the network such that I can feed the data set well. Mm-hmm. Again, this, this is an information theoretic question somewhat. This has nothing to do with algorithms. So you just ask, does the solution exist? Now, if a solution and doesn't exist, you go home and you buy a new network. 
And in this sense, uh, this coming back to as we already described before, talked before, when you talk about um, having a good parameter set for the network, you talk about, in this sense, almost a perfect fit. Yes, in this case, let's say a perfect fit. So I give you a standard data set, say NIST. So NIST is uh, 60,000 images and they are digits, so between zero and nine. So 6K per digit, and they give those, and I want you to fit them all correctly. So mm -hmm. I want to find a set of weights such that the classification error is, for example, exactly zero, or it's smaller than, I don't know, 0.1%. Mm -hmm. Okay. Question, does it exist a network that does that? Okay, suppose that we can answer this. Then the second question is, let's say that I optimize this with gradient descent or some related method. Okay, now there are tons of variants, of course, because what you can do is that you can divide the data in batches, and then you take a small batch, take the average of the gradient and you update. And there you can ask, well, what's the size of the batch? Or you could do second order methods where instead of looking just at the gradient, you look also at the second derivatives. So you mm -hmm. look at the Hessian. So you could do like many things, but so when I'm saying gradient descent, I'm being here deliberately vague because you could look at a plethora of methods really. But fundamentally speaking, what you're asking is, Okay, say that I want to optimize this with gradient descent, then what happens? So do I actually get to the local op to the global optimum that I know to exist because that mm -hmm. I proved before? Right? And the final question is, will I generalize well? So now all that I've talked about is about training sets. So I give you a set of 60,000 images, I tell you what are the labels, and I want you to train your machine to output correct predictions. Mm -hmm. But that's not what machine learning is about, because what this is about is I give you then a new set of images for which you don't have the labels, mm -hmm. and you plug in in your machine, you turn the crank, and then you output new labels, and you want that the labels are correct uh, well, most of the time at least. And so you want to understand what's called the generalization error of the neural network that you started. Mm -hmm. But understanding these three questions, I think, is really at the heart of, of the theory of deep learning, and that's really what I've been doing in the past couple of years. I understand. And so as you've already described those um, three different stages or three different questions that you ask. So in your research you're doing, you try to approach one of them after the other or in your different research, you, you tackle them simultaneously in part. I, I think they're really, inter they're really intertwined. I would say that it, it's fair to say that most of the research is really driven by techniques. So you know a bunch of techniques for which you can approach the problem. And then what you'll try to do is really to see what kind of results you can get in these three realms. Again, if, if I'm allowed the joke, uh, you know what's, what's Feynman's trick to be a genius? No. Feynman's trick to be a genius is the following. So you have you know, four or five hammers that, that you know very well. So Feynman is a Nobel Prize physicist. Mm -hmm. and, and then what you do is that every time a new problem comes in, you just try to hit it with your hammers. Now, there are two, th two things can happen. So either the problem doesn't break and then, okay, you know, you just look for a new problem. Or if the problem breaks, oh, you know, Feynman is a genius because he just looked at this, uh, this problem and he solved it immediately. So, okay, outside the joke, you know, there are two methods that have arisen in the past couple of years or two general techniques that uh, I've been looking at to understand mm -hmm. these three questions in neural networks. One is a mean field kind of approach this is again motivated by statistical physics. And the idea is that you have, you look at the neural network as a system of interacting particles. The interacting particles here are the weights. Mm -hmm. What you try to do is that you try to 
develop a theory that gives you macroscopic equations. So it, this is a little bit in the same spirit of what you would do when you try to analyze the motion of the particles in a gas. Mm -hmm. These particles are a lot, like there are Avogadro numbers, 10 to the 20 or something. Then instead of looking at the motion of each single particle, you try to look at an aggregated quantity. So you try to look at something like the average or the density of the particles. Here, what you want to do is that instead of looking at the weights of the network, you want to look at the density of the weights. Because mm -hmm. this is hopefully an easier problem. Because instead of having n parameters, you're just going to have one. Okay, it's not obvious that it's an easier problem because the, pro the additional problem was somewhat discrete because you just had n real numbers. And now you have a distribution. But, okay, as it turns out, this perspective does buy you a lot of stuff. So, for example, it buys you convergence and generalization in some particular setting. It buys you in the sense that you can characterize what's the limiting distribution. So if you let the neural network train for a long time, you can say something about how does the density look like for a very long time. Mm -hmm. You can study basically characteristics or you can study properties of the landscape of solution that's obtained. So for example, in a recent paper with my student that was published last year at uh, one of the mach main machine learning events, ICML, which is the International Conference on Machine Learning, what he looked is to apply these kind of mean field techniques to say something about how the solutions found by grid and descent look like. So there mm -hmm. the question was, do they look like isolated points? So it could be that grid and descent finds a point. This point is a local minimum. And then all over, in all directions you move, you know, you have, you're basically uh, in a valley. So you mm -hmm. have mountains all around you. So the loss is very large. Now this in principle, it's not so great because what could happen is that you are in a suboptimal valley and you never escape. Mm -hmm. A local optimal. Yeah. Then, exactly, you're in a local optimal. Now, what we are able to show is that all minima have some sort of connectedness property. So mm -hmm. if you find two local minima, then there is a not too complicated path that has low loss and that connects them. So this is a very nice property for the landscape to have because it means that the algorithm will be able to travel between local optima, so it's unlikely to get stuck at some suboptimal points. And this really, this beam field perspective is really what in the end allows you to obtain these results, which if you think about it in an abstract uh, way, in an abstract setting is you know, quite surprising. Exactly, that's something that I wanted to ask you about because in the preparation of this interview, I was reading some of your research and, and we shortly discussed this. Um, I found this property of this connect between local minima or between minima, I think it's very interesting. Um, I'm a bit surprised as well, or I wanted to ask you more about these implications con concerning uh, in practice the training. Because, um, for example, as I understand it, there are like different training methods, for example, concerning cyclical learning rate training, where you variate, for example, the learning rate. And it was my understanding that in part you do this because you wanted, for example, to increase the learning rate to give a network the opportunity, an optimizer to jump over. Over to jump out of local minima so that they can then find new local minima. But if, but if I understand it correctly, that um, with the theory and things that you found, this is actually not, not necessary because you can, let's say, get out of a local valley and find even better spots without having to, to make those bigger jumps. Do you understand this correctly? I think that's a very good point. So this, so the tuning of the learning rate has been a hard thing. Uh, I've been thinking about this and trying to see if uh, this advanced mathematical tools tell you something. So this is still work in progress. We don't have a definite answer to mm -hmm. what you say yet. W what I can say is that basically 
what the result that I mentioned above shows or suggests is that all these networks will be very robust in the sense that if you remove, since the network is so parameterized and so big, if you just scratch, let's say, half of the neurons and you rescale the rest, the output is not going to change so much. And ultimately, this is what makes these paths connected. Mm-hmm. Now, again, having the paths connected is a little bit of a weaker property than convergence to a global solution, because this just tells you that there is one path that connects the two. Mm-hmm. It's not clear at all whether the algorithm will find it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so is, I understand. We're not showing that this goes to a global optimum. So this is not a convergence type of result. It's a weaker one. It's something about the topology of the landscape. That brings me to, to another question that I had when I, was, when I was reading about this was about when you talk about now this connected local minima, um, could it be that there are subsets of local minima that are connected? So certain type of local minima that are interconnected, which are in two minutes of orthogonal to other uh, sets of local minima. So could it be that, let's say, there are certain types of local minima that you can reach, but they exactly are not connected to other interconnected sets of local minima? That's a very good point. I mean, the, the result in that, in that sense is actually quite strong, because what it proves is that most of the local minima are good. Mm-hmm. And most has to be intended in a probabilistic way. Because again, the, the, the proof is basically a stochastic process kind of analysis. So what you do is that you relate the neural network to the solution of a certain partial differential equation, and in particular sampling from this partial differential equation. So you show that with high probability over the randomness of the samples, over the randomness of the initialization over everything, then some good thing is going to happen. So this is a high probability kind of result. Mm-hmm. So it's not... So it could be that there is one minimum that's bad for which our result does not happen. What that result guarantees you is that 99% of the time this won't happen. Mm-hmm. And this is somewhat as good as it gets in the sense that you know you can construct explicitly networks where the minima are isolated. It's not so hard to do that. So unless the network is... Let's say, unless the network has stronger requirement than what we have in that paper, so it is indeed possible to have bad cases, what that paper suggests is that bad cases won't happen most of the time. Mm-hmm. And this probabilistic analysis is really what saves you many cases in many ways. Even in coding theory, there are essentially two, uh, if you want, two branches. So one is what's called, let's say, the Shannon branch, if, uh, if I'm allowed the... Mm-hmm. You know, this characterization, so the Shannon branch tells you something with high probability for the code. And then there is the Hamming way of looking at things where you're looking for worst-case worst guarantees. So you want that for all the code words that have a certain form, you want to say something. Mm-hmm. Now, the thresholds and the results that you can obtain in these two perspectives are very different. Mm-hmm. Because, like, maybe it's surprising, but... If you if you really start delving in this kind of literature, this is really a ubiquitous kind of phenomenon. But if you allow yourself to prove things with high probability, so with probability 99.9%, you can get so much more. Mm-hmm. Because most of the most of the adversarial cases are really rare events. So they don't happen most of the time. And how does it actually then as like the theory or the, the thing um, that you're researching, how much does this then still depend on the networks and on and as well like on the data. Really a lot. So we we're really starting. This is really just started. So what we do is mostly 
fully connected uh, layers because those are the simplest. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a bunch of papers that now looks, for example, at residual networks, mostly because they're very practical and they're very used or convolutional layers. But this is really a work in progress and an extension that, okay. that we're currently working on. So we are really doing this bottom-up. So we start from the simplest possible model and then we do more and more complicated, but we are getting there. And do you, can you say something or do you have hopes on how well, let's say, they generalize to, as you said, other type of architectures and in this sense will have a, can be used as well, like in practice, because as you said, already your previous work, like for example, information theory part, error correcting part, this is already now, let's say, part of, um, of the new telecommunication protocols and methods. So you know exactly, um, that it has a nice impact in <clears throat> a limited time frame. Can, can, do you, do you have some aspirations there on how the, this research that you're performing at the, at the moment can be generalized to? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, really. At the end of the day, what you want to do is that you want to make an impact on the real world. So this is definitely the goal that you have. I think in machine learning, it's, if you look at this from a historical perspective, it's very interesting because like in information theory or like in wireless communication, the order of the two things was somewhat reversed because people first did the math and tried to understand what were the optimal rates or the optimum performance that could be achieved. And then they started to design error connecting codes meeting this limit. While mm -hmm. here, people at first designed the machines that solve practical tasks. And then now we are trying to do theory and we are trying to understand why all those machine works. One reason why that is, is probably technology, simply because uh, when, when Shannon wrote his landmark paper in information theory uh, in the 40s, We just didn't have the computational power mm -hmm. that we have now. While now it's, it's just easier to throw computational things because it's more or less cheap. So it's actually easier to do that than the math. So I, I really do look forward to see what kind of new application, what kind of new techniques uh, this kind of theory leads to. But it will need time because the, the field is really just uh, bored now and there are, it's a very active one. Mm -hmm. Uh, many sessions at major conferences. So I really look forward to see uh, what awaits us in the future. But I think uh, from a really history of science perspective, this period is really interesting because it somewhat changed uh, the order of things. Now, I also think that we are somewhat reaching the capability of what's possible in the sense that really at large scale, there are very few places where you can have the amount of compute that's needed to push the boundaries further. Mm -hmm. That actually brings me brings me to a point that I wanted to ask you, and, and but uh, as we're like thinking at uh, looking at the clock, um, which probably move uh, to the to to the later part, to the end, to the interview. But there's something that I definitely wanted to to ask you about, and you mentioned it in part um, about let's say the limits in researching for this interview as well. I was looking like um, it's like in the background of stochastic gradient descent and um, and what else is there on the table, let's say. And if I understand it correctly, um, without understanding the theory, but maybe you can mention a few things about this stochastic gradient descent being a first-order optimization algorithm, um, the alternative, for example, second-order optimization methods like the Kronecker factor approximation curvature. So there are some there are some alternatives to what is, as I understand it, like mostly used at the moment. For me, the question comes up, so 
are there really many alternatives to the stochastic gradient descent as, as it's used at the moment in practice? And from your experience, so what would you say where, how far can we, what can we expect on to achieve, um, or let's, let's reframe it like this. Um, what do you think, where are the limits on how much better can we do with, with other gradient descent methods? I'd say on this, again, here I would like to wear my engineering hat somehow. And uh, I would like to say that here it's really good engineering practice. And it depends a lot on the problem that you have. Like mm -hmm. in many large scale problems, you can just do first order methods sometimes. Because that's like computing second order method is just not possible. Because the size of the data that you have just does not allow you to do that. So there I think this is sunk, basically. In smaller mm -hmm. scale problems, then like playing with the learning rate, for example, or looking at second, incorporating second order information has showed a significant improvement. And for example, in the convex world, the acceleration that's provided by using second order methods has been known for 40 years or so. Basically, Nestor has done most of the theory and you know this is very well understood. Understanding this in the non-convex world, I think is a very exciting future direction of research. But if you just look at a practical problem, what if you're really looking just at the optimization for a specific data set that you have for your application, I think it depends a lot on how that looks like. Because in some cases, using this method is just not possible. I have to say that, for example, adaptive choices of step sizes, for example, Adam, Adagrad are super popular. And I would say these are, or RMS prop, these are indeed the algorithm that gets used. In, mm -hmm. most, in most of the packages. And when you at the moment mention not possible and you really talk like from the resource uh, that are needed to apply those methods to the yeah. given amount of data that you have. Yeah, like the storing the Hessian for some problems is just not possible because you don't have enough memory to do that. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to start, I mean, if you really want to do that, then you love to do tricks. So you love to, for example, one more common thing that gets done is sketching. So sketching basically means I have a very large matrix. And what I want to do is that I want to save for myself just a sketch of that matrix that's sufficiently small so that it fits and that still encapsulates the properties mm -hmm. of the original matrix that I had. Again, let me make a simple example. So I, I want to do matrix multiplication. Okay, so I want to multiply two matrices and say I want to multiply a fat matrix with a tall matrix. Now in this, I'll have to pay, I mean, I have at least to read the matrices. Mm -hmm. So it will take me at least as much time as reading all the entries. But now the, the fact is that the final matrix that I have is relatively small because I'm multiplying the large dimensions together. So one question is, is it possible to find the reduction of the two matrices such that the result is close enough, mm -hmm. but I don't have to read so many entries? And okay, unsurprisingly, the answer is yes, and you have okay, many methods to do that. And this is basically a, a, now a subfield of computer science. So in, in what I'm saying is that you may have to be clever about it. That's the only thing I'm saying, really. Mm -hmm. So if, if that's not possible, then either you should just use a simpler method or you have to adopt some sort of compression technique. And this will depend very much on the particular problem or the, on the structure of the data set that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. I understand. 
But so, at the same time, as you said, right, um, your aspiration is that with having a better and more a theoretical grounded understanding of um, these types of iterative uh, gradient yeah, methods. Yeah, and the, the idea is that you will not be able to prove something for a super specific data set. So you, you'll be able, you'll need to do assumptions anyway. But I think the goal here is to make assumptions that are still reasonable. I mean, one thing that I always try to do as a good sanity check is to have experimental results that try to test whether the effects that I'm showing rigorously do happen in data sets that are considered in practice. Mm -hmm. Because this data set very rarely satisfy all the things that, that I want from the problem, but they do show somewhat the same effect. So I think this is a good sanity check and a good reality check to always have. And has become somewhat good practice, even in the theory of machine learning. Mm -hmm. I understand. Well, very interesting. Um, but then looking at the, the clock really, and maybe moving to the end of the interview, um, but I would be curious about, can you maybe say something about sort of the, some of the most interesting, what you think, future directions in your field, what you, are inter what you think are very interesting and what, for example, you would, um, would recommend to someone who thinks about doing maybe a PhD, either in your group or in a, in a similar group, but in this area that um, could, what people maybe could focus their attention on. Sure. I mean, I can say a couple of things that I've been thinking about and are currently going on in my group. Now, one, one problem that we've been looking at is basically understanding how many connections do you need in a deep neural network so that you can have results about the three things that I mentioned before. So you can memorize the data, you can optimize well, and you can generalize well. Mm -hmm. Now, information theory gives you basically a good bound already. So it tells you that you would need at least as many connections as data points up to log factors. And okay, this can be done by computing DC dimensions and this program has been carried out. So there is, let's say, a good moral bound that, that you want to reach. Mm -hmm. This has been made rigorous in some settings, but again, here I'm mostly interested in the high level ideas. Now, the, what we are able to do right now is that if one layer is white, so if one layer has enough connections, then we are able to show that this picture takes place. So we can memorize, we can optimize. Hopefully, we can also generalize. The generalization mm -hmm. part is work in progress, but that should work out. Now, one question I think is very interesting that I've been looking at is to try to harness the power of depth. So let's say that now I allow you more layers. And for example, I don't want to have so many neurons because again, storing neurons is expensive. So I just want to have two layers that have roughly the same amount of neurons, but now have linearly many connections in the number of samples. Can we prove mm -hmm. something similar? Now this, theoretically speaking, is a much harder problem than the previous one. And so making this picture rigorous and for networks that try to harness really the power of depth against width is a very interesting open problem and something that I've been looking at with my group right now. Mm -hmm. But they, did I understand correctly that in this sense, this is not a fully connected layer anymore? No, let's, so let's, say, let's say it's still fully connected. I mean, mm -hmm. you can also try to phrase this using, for example, convolutional layers or ResNet, but for the moment, let's just stick with fully connected. Now, the, the question is, is the following. So let's say that I have a, a first network that has one layer that's wide, so that has 
n neurons, where n is the number of training samples, and there's some structure afterwards. Okay, this, even if the layer before and after the wide one are small, mm -hmm. always has a linear number of connections. Mm -hmm. So for this, we can prove stop. So we can actually prove it when one, when the first one is wide and the remaining one form a pyramidal topology. Mm -hmm. It's also motivated by computer vision because many of these architectures are used there. And so that's, that was also our motivation. Now, the question is, well, if you just want to have linearly many connections, you don't need to have a wide layer. You could have two of them that have some number of neurons, but now you just need the square root of the number of samples. Because mm -hmm. if you have two layers that have square root of the number of samples, then the number of connections is again linear in them. Mm, now, okay. this is much mm -hmm. more economical because it has actually the square root of the number of neurons than the one before. So the, I understand. And here mm -hmm. I'm really trying to harness the power of depth because I'm having more layers that are wide as opposed to one. Mm -hmm. So the question is whether the same picture now arises in this kind of architecture, or in general, really, suppose that I give you any network and it has linearly many connections and I don't tell you what they are. So they could be really anywhere. Is it true that this network will memorize, optimize, generalize well? Mm -hmm. Parts of this picture have been proven. So for example, if all layers are wide, this, this can be proved. If all layers have polynomially many neurons, you can prove that. You can mm -hmm. even prove it if only one is wide and all the others form a pyramid of topology, which is a much less restrictive requirement. Mm -hmm. But proving it in full generality, where, for example, you don't have the luxury of having a wide layer, is still an open problem and, again, in my personal opinion, a rather interesting one. I understand. Interesting. Very Definitely sounds uh, like very challenging, but at the same time, very uh, insightful um, research that you're doing, that you want to do there. Um, well, with this, I want to thank you very much for the time that you took to come onto the show and to talk about your research. Um, it's been a big pleasure to have you on the show. And My pleasure, um, indeed. I hope there will be the, there's this opportunity for possible candidates as well um, to find this and uh, have a better understanding what you're doing in your group and find for, for them maybe an interesting fit for either like an internship as I mentioned before or maybe like a position in your group. Indeed, indeed. So I have again internships, some open uh, all year, especially in the summer. Our grad school call is typically at the beginning of January. So Please do apply and mention my name in the application. And yeah, again, Manuel, thanks again for the opportunity. It was a pleasure to have a chat with you today. Vision you too. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Thanks.